that's the tallest building in town. The library, because it has the most stores. We didn't own a car, so we would go to the library with a shopping cart and fill um, the shopping cart with our books. I was probably about six or seven, and my mom took me to our local library for a story time. I went with my dad every Saturday morning. I remember coming here like since we moved here when I was five, and every summer we do the summer reading program. As the years have gone by, you begin to realize how much you know, interesting stuff the library has to offer besides books. When I was growing up, my aunt would always take me to the library. I was in third grade, and then I loved the library, the Carnegie Library. I went to the story times that were at the library. The librarian was my dad. Welcome back to the tallest building in town. Hi. It's 2019. Happy New Year. How was your um, holiday? It was good. It was a good uh, Michigan trip. How was yeah. your holiday? It was fine. <laughs> I mean, I slipped and hit my head on the ice and had a concussion and some fractured facial bones, but otherwise... I'm so glad you're okay. Thank you. So as always, we're the tallest building in town. We like to share stories about libraries and the people who use them. I'm Steve. And I'm Shauna. And we work at the Sun Prairie Public Library in sunny Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. I want to talk about hidden collections, and it felt like a really nerdy thing that might not have to do with libraries, but then it did. So yeah. we're going to talk about hidden collections that are in libraries, but then also outside of libraries. We usually think of a collection as a grouping of things, either physical or digital. And I think for our purposes, a collection will mean more than one thing. I don't think it's wrong to say that when people think about libraries, they tend to think about the collections of stuff we have in our buildings. Yeah. Historically, the vast majority of that stuff has been books. So that's the collection that people most often associate with the word library. If you've been in a library in the past 20 years, though, you know that there's a lot of other stuff there. More than books. Yeah, like our um, groundhog that sits in the... Oh my our, gosh. Yeah, for Groundhog Day, the, the plush groundhog. Yeah, we have a groundhog. We don't know why it's here, but it's behind a glass. That's true. A locked glass. You can't touch it. <laughs> I mean, if you go to the reference desk and ask for the key, maybe we'll let you look at the groundhog puppet. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different questions we could ask about the purposes of those collections and who defines what goes into those collections. But what about other kinds of collections, things that libraries hold on to but people don't have immediate access to? Yeah, like what about collections of things that aren't in libraries or archives but that are organized in a way that tells the story of a community where those things live? So this month, we're going to look at some of those things, those weird hidden collections, um, talk about why they're important and what libraries might do to promote or deny access to those things. In the context of libraries, we're thinking today about what kinds of things are or are not professionally curated. Things that are not formally organized or may or may not be open to the public. Despite living in a highly digital world, especially in developed countries, we still have a ton of stuff laying around that isn't digitized. In a lot of the archivist-oriented material that I read in preparation for this, the phrase hidden collection is often equated with special collections. For example, the Council on Library and Information Resources gives out a grant called Digitizing Hidden Collections. Which is awesome! Yeah, it's really great, and it supports opening access to collections the public is not usually able to see. Carol Mandel, the former dean of New York University's libraries, bemoans what she calls a lack of standards in mm. how special collections are organized and cataloged. According to her, many of the special collections held in large research libraries, whether it's rare books or pamphlets, maps, musical scores, 
have been cataloged over decades using finding aids that are now obsolete. So she mentions index cards, paper lists, and software that can't be used anymore because the computers that run it don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's stuff in libraries that is supposed to be available, but you can't get to them because... Technology uh, changes. Right. So I found that to be true in many small public libraries as well. Oftentimes they have special collections of historical material and locally produced material like our groundhog. And um, <laughs> in fact, well, we're doing, I mean, we're doing a um, digitization project later this year where we're hoping to make some of our um, local history, local collection. history collection available. Yeah. So that's, that's what it is for a lot of libraries, um, lacrosse, public library, Hartford, public library, Campbellsport, public library. They're like varying sizes and they all have actually like a local history room Mm. that may or may not be open when you're there, may or may not be unlocked, and the person who knows where things are might or might not be there Be there at the time. Mount Horeb Public Library has a collection of vinyl records mm. that it's really interesting because they're actually, they're locally produced, so they were, there was a studio in Mount Horeb years and years ago, and they would record, like, the local jazz band or, like, performances by local choirs and things, and they would put them out on vinyl, and they have those there, but... When you go into the catalog to look it up, it just they're just called generic vinyl LP Mount Horeb. Which makes them hidden. Yeah, so you don't know what they have exactly or um, how to find them unless you know exactly what you're looking for. It speaks to that point of having to really go there and be there to know what's there. I kind of like the idea of of collections that you can't get to without actually going to them. That's why we're doing this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just mean, like, but it's just really cool in this world where, like, it's assumed that everything's online, that there's all this stuff that's not. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things like that that have swept the nation <laughs> not just yeah. not just Wisconsin when okay. it comes to the public libraries and these collections that exist only in the space they're not in the catalog like some places catalog their baking pans oh, those baking, baking collections pans. and stuff uh, others don't so how do pr- information professionals decide whether they can or should preserve something or not or when do we add items into a collection so to answer these questions, you do have to look at what type of library it is. If it's an archive or a museum, you're looking at their available space. They're deciding if it's possible to preserve something for a very long time, potentially forever. But public libraries mainly keep collections around that are popular or educational. Uh, we hope that many different people will take our items home. And it's okay if they are well-loved over time and end up disintegrating. But no matter what kind of library it is, the mission is to serve its community. And so we decide what is added, preserved or not added, based on our community's needs. Seed packets you can check out from the La Crosse Public Library in the spring and plant in your garden. We're not only gardeners, but we're also catalogers and We collect information of all types and catalog it and make it available to the public. And it just so happens that seeds can be in that category. 
So when I think about hidden collections, Steve, I think about the fact that some objects just might be too hard to contain because of space. We don't have a whole lot of stuff like that in our library. I yeah, think. I was trying to think of some examples of stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm sure our local history cabinet is got has some papers in it that yep. could use some archivist work. Yeah, there's definitely some old books. In my, in my old library, um, the newspaper started, it was a you know local newspaper, started publishing in 1897, and there was one copy of that first newspaper. When the newspaper sold, their, they, it was owned by the same family, and they brought all the archival stuff to the library. So for a short time, I had them all, you know, like these big, huge, thick, bound volumes of all these really, really old newspapers where they didn't exist anywhere else, digitally or physically. You know, we didn't have the money or the staff right. to digitize all those things. Mm-hmm. I downloaded an app for the iPad. It's like a scanner app. Oh. You would have to like set up the iPad. And I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, you put the, the put the thing down and then you like take a picture of it and it adjusts the contrast and everything and, and gives you like a high res scan of yeah. the event essentially. And I did that for like the front page of several years worth of like very oldest ones. Because most of the local information is on the front page. Mm-hmm. And then as you dug into it, it wasn't like stories of the community. I see. So there's some really interesting, weird, weird historical stuff. You're really playing that gatekeeper role really well. This stuff is really important, but I don't know about this stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what we do, right? You have to make that decision. Either some parts of it can be preserved or none of it can be preserved. And you have to pick. Sometimes all of it can be preserved. Sometimes. The State Historical Society does have it all microfilmed. Mm -hmm. So we can like pay them to get their microfilm digitized as a searchable PDF, which is cool, but expensive. A lot of money. Hidden collections, I think, are slowly becoming viewable because of digital practices but it's a slow process an expensive process so but there's there's hidden collections outside of libraries i know and that's kind of like one of the things that made us want to do this episode yeah one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode is because i did this powerpoint presentation in grad school about the types of collections that exist in the world that most people aren't aware of or that cannot be experienced unless you're in the right place at the right time, as we've been talking about. And one of the interesting things we discussed while putting together this episode is why do collections matter to some populations but not others? Basically, what gives them value? For example, why do people in Wisconsin spend $30 to go experience the House on the Rock? Steve. I I don't know. Steve, what is the House on the Rock? Um, It's a, well, I mean, it's a tourist attraction, but I mean, it's one guy's, Alex Jordan, Alex Jordan Jr. It's a collection of of stuff that he either collected or had people create for him. Well, I didn't realize that he created many of the objects, and he opened it up to the public in 1960. As you cross the many thresholds, you'll find room after cozy room filled with the unique and the fascinating. This table, made from a giant bellows holds a collection of paperweights gathered from around the world. Here, there are also collections of mechanical banks, bisque dolls, taxidermy, antique weapons, suits of armor, forerunners of the huge collections you'll see later on. I can't wait to go there. I've not gone there, and I had a fun time calling them to ask them questions. To me, the most interesting thing about that collection, besides the fact that it's, it's a weird collection of, like, eccentric things mm-hmm. is that nothing is really labeled like it's not a it's not a museum he wasn't right. a, like a professional archivist or whatever they emphasize to me that there's no curator here yeah and i was like yeah i know but <laughs> <laughs> just who's in charge <laughs> yeah it was just how do you know if something is stolen or broken and they were like it shouldn't be a problem because things are up high and 
behind a railing and then I got off the phone and worried that they thought that I was trying to plan to steal something there. Yeah, which is, that's plausible. And, and if you've ever read the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. he, they go there. Oh, and they go yeah. on the world's largest carousel. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, it's really weird. Hidden collection. Yeah. Hashtag. Well, arguably collections have value, like House on the Rock, simply because a community like Wisconsin decides (laughs) that it's important. For example, when I was thinking about my hidden collections, Steve, I see value in them because of the community that created it. And usually that value increases the more people that participated in building the collection. So a simple example, it's called Blank White Cards, and it's this fabulous, decades-old collection of 3 by 5 blank index cards that anyone can write or draw on. And so this is a collection of cards at Nottingham Cooperative in downtown Madison, where I lived for about three years. And from what I know, we're not the first space to hold this kind of collection, but I think it's amazing because you wouldn't likely know about this unless you lived or hung out there. Plus the fact that they've stuck around for decades boggles my mind because it's not like anyone formally takes care of them. Um, And hundreds of people have lived in this house. I asked my dear friend Tegan to describe what this collection is. What is this collection we are both lovingly familiar with called Blank White Cards? Blank White Cards is a physical manifestation of individual and communal memory. What do they look like? Literally blank white note cards that anyone who plays blank white cards, anyone who makes a blank white card can use whatever form of communicative, physical... uh, You can use ink, you can use paint, you can use stickers, you can use spit, you could use blood, period blood, whatever. Anything to mark down something. You can collage things onto it. It can be a quote. It can be a, a sketch. It can be all of those things on the, the card. And then it's no longer blank, which is the funny part about it, because when you <laughs> refer to the, uh, the collection, none of them are blank. But if you were to call them cards with things on them, <laughs> none of us would know what you're talking about. But they are blank white cards. When I think of blank white cards, it's it's an interesting uh, conundrum, paradox of both communal and individual capture of memory. Because individual humans in the community are making the cards, they're recording things, bits of ephemera that would otherwise just be in their own brains or their own observations. And they also tend to be, I think, focused around somehow communal, like inside jokes or conversations or moments that, you know, are important to the group and then their individual lenses. So it is both individual and communal at the same time, which is an odd paradox, I think. When you look at the blank white cards that have been created later, you know, like one of my favorite things, I think, the longer that I knew of it was to look at the collected artifacts that we had and remember previous evenings or previous events or moments 
when we had done this, and and it's sort of like a scatter shot, snapshot, um, celestial map of the communal memory in individual moments. So if you looked at one of them and be like, okay, this is my brain in this one moment on this one evening. This is the thing that I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. But then if, and this is also not something that happens. Most of the time you don't date these things. So they're sort of blurry and they're, uh, you know, there's not a linear necessarily connection, connective tissue between one to the next, but you can guess at that later. And I think... That's really fun. It mirrors human memory in a lot of ways. Do you think blank white cards should be preserved in some way? Uh, the like artifact hoarder in me says yes. Part of the wonderful anarchy energy of cooperative living makes me want to say we should someday collect them and burn them and dance around them. <laughs> I totally get that. So a couple of the hidden collections that I was thinking about when we first started talking about this. It made me so excited. First of all, like mu- music scene ephemera. And like Madison's a good place to see that. A lot of times there's there's these big kiosks. Um, there's some on State Street and there's some on Willie Street. And I think there's probably some elsewhere in the city. But basically just posters stapled onto things for months and months people will just keep stapling taping, posters and yeah stapling so like, tape- taping right i visited one of those <laughs> and found it to be really interesting i'm on the corner of baldwin and willie street in madison and it is new year's eve well it's the 31st and i'm looking at one of these poster it's like a barrel shaped thing it's probably like six and a half feet tall it's just covered in things so there's like there's a cat spayed and neutered poster holiday burlesque ball there's outlaw night at the high noon saloon uh the rocky horror picture show is playing oh that was yesterday we missed that david hecht and the who dat is at the crystal corner bar in january mad youth climate team i mean it looks like some of these go back to november the marxism conference in chicago oh and here's the counting crows (laughs) at breeze field that was in september and they didn't come, that's right. So yeah, I mean, there's probably like, I don't know, an inch and a half, maybe, of things. That's the middle, that's like six inches. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and it's just like tape around this thing. It's a pretty amazing collection of community events, mostly music related. A bunch of stuff for the Crystal Corner, which is actually right across the street from here. So yeah, I'm not gonna go to any of these shows. The other thing is, besides the posters, which go away eventually, is like stickers, band stickers, and like all over the bathrooms in a venue. Yeah. Which happens often from what I know of going to the bathroom in venues. Well, it's, yeah, it's fun to think about co- like what is a collection, what do you consider a collection, and how would you preserve it if you think it's 
if it's needed, if you need to preserve it, yeah. if it's deemed worthy of preservation, how would you preserve this bathroom full of stickers in a bar somewhere? Right, right. Maybe a community thinks, no, this has been around for a hundred years. We would really like this to not go away. Yeah. You know, how would that work? There's been a couple attempts to do those things. There's a, um, a Milwaukee punk scene has a an archive which is like actively trying to collect old t- like cassette tapes and vinyl singles and even like paper flyers and things from that scene like in the 80s and 90s. Those things that when you're in the midst of it doing it, you feel like it's really important and it's going to be around forever. But then a couple of years later, go on to other things. And all of a sudden, like the posters you made, maybe just by gluing things together are, are gone. Right. You know? it, it mattered to a community and tells the story of a community. Right. So I think that's the important thing of holding on to some of those collections and unhiding them, as we say in the business. Thinking about um, digital things like tweets and what did you say, Snapchat? Yeah, I was talking about <laughs> <laughs> Snapchat. Snapchat like, hackers. Because we have this, yeah, this fascination with things that are not permanent, ephemeral collections, things that you wouldn't experience unless you were there. And it's funny in the case of Snapchat, there, you know, if you're a hacker, you can get all of this stuff that we think is disappearing because it's not. There are a lot of things that we think are gone but aren't gone i'm thinking of like amazon and facebook and like the places that want to know what we've been doing right um not illegal stuff necessarily but just stuff in general yeah those are hidden collections which i know can be scary but is real i think i mean it would be cool i think to have an entire list of every website you visited ever since since the beginning of your internet career yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've thought about that. You, you have? Know, yeah, because <laughs> I, it's that same thing of, like, when you die and you get maybe a video of, like, your lifespan and somehow you're able to see, like, the whole thing really quickly. So I've, I've, it's, it's like that where I've thought about visiting every... Seeing everything you've visited, seen on the internet, like, really quickly. Yeah. We were talking about before, though, like, things that are now valuable that didn't used to be, uh, things that are seemingly now worthy of organizing or keeping and preserving. Um, It's interesting to think about the library profession and ways that it's changing Mm. and has changed, I guess I should say already. So for example, like there are meme librarians. Right. Uh, You know, thought about how memes, what role they play in our culture. And so maybe we should keep some of those and organize them professionally. And of course, we've been trying to do, we've been trying to preserve oral histories for a while. You just did an oral history project with your family about Christmas. Last Christmas, I was just puttering around, feeling a bit blue about the holiday season. And I decided to record a bunch of pieces of noises that were happening in my my family's house and then I also recorded everybody including my brand new niece that was only about I think 10 days old at the time and all just about Christmas like first memories of Christmas traditions that we do in our family uh, where those came from what your favorites are and why anyways I took hours of this content and mix it together into a piece that is uh, essentially an oral history of Christmas time with my family.
I like a lot of the ornaments I have, and one of the things that I really am glad that Grandma showed me was, and I think it was an excellent idea, was the the collecting of ornaments every single year and giving them to you guys so that when you did move out, you had something to decorate your own tree. And I learned it firsthand because when I moved, when I started my first year of college in 1991 at U of M, I was able to decorate my own tree, and that was really cool to be able to have my own box and to be able to fill up my own tree and not have to go out and buy a bunch of you know a bunch of stuff it was all things that were given to me over the years and i think it's a excellent tradition that i you know wanted all you guys to be able to pass on you know to it's very very cool people have said a lot about ornaments to me i'm sure (laughs) i'm sure they have What's your favorite Christmas tradition? Well, I was going to say the ornaments, but we didn't really do ornaments this year. <laughs> yeah, I love, I mean, I loved getting the ornaments. But now we have like so many ornaments. Yeah, we have a lot of ornaments. So. <laughs> and I mean, I still got one this year. Sure. I actually got like three because grandma got me a couple of them for Charlie, you know, for her handprint. I want to, I'm doing ornaments for our, our kids. We, we're going to go out and get one for Charlie. Grandma either buying the Hallmark, buying the Hallmark and started making them. I love those. Speaking with people today and this week, ornaments has been on everyone's mind. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everyone really has grown to love ornaments, thanks to you, I would guess. That's something that's special to us, and now we have so many. We're really grateful for that. And And I felt bad that I didn't get them done this year. Oh, that's okay. It's definitely okay. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on. But we have also, the point is we have so many. (laughs) You just buy a bigger tree, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're grateful to you and your ornaments. Thank you. That's nice to know. When you start to look at the world in the form of a collection, you start to then see collections everywhere and then maybe you want to share them with others yeah and that usually means like grabbing your phone right so keep on the lookout for those hidden collections y'all so 2018 was a good year for us i think it was a good year for the podcast it was a fun year we sort of got a little more focused and like a little more like a tiny bit more (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to the tallest building in town yeah we'll be back next month how do we want to end this i don't know we didn't we didn't write the ending i know shoot I know. I'm trying to think. How did you end your um, the, the other thing? You I mean, did, I ended PowerPoint. my my PowerPoint. Yeah, how did you end your PowerPoint? Any questions? <laughs> <laughs>